So Money Episode 780, Jonathan Fields, founder of Good Life Project. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. A life of uncertainty is one that is worth living. Welcome to So Money, everybody. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. Thanks for joining. It may sound scary, but our guest today offers some pretty profound insights and experiences around taking risks and dancing with your fears. It's actually integral, he says, to living a good life. Jonathan Fields is on the podcast today. He is a New York City dad, husband, award-winning author, media producer, and entrepreneur. His latest book is Uncertainty, Turning Fear and Doubt into Fuel for Brilliance. Jonathan's current focus is Good Life Project. It's a media and education venture. Maybe you've heard the popular podcast. It's also a global movement that empowers people to live more engaged and connected lives. He and I discuss how to go about living a good life, financially speaking, the importance of living a life of uncertainty and being in your career and being in the unfortunate middle and how to get out. Here's Jonathan Fields. Jonathan Fields, welcome to So Money. Thank you for having me. I'm excited for my interview to air on your show. Uh, you just interviewed me. We're in your home on the Upper West Side. You interviewed me for about an hour and I told you <laughs> Which things. Which felt like five. <laughs> but it was such a good hour. I, it, it went by. Besides the fact that it's really warm. <laughs> it's a little toasty in the studio. <laughs> I thought we were joking. We should do like hot podcasting, like hot yoga, but... <laughs> See, you know, what will people reveal when the temperature hits 114 and it's 32 minutes in? And so stay tuned for that. But and it's like, tell me what you are now. Exactly. <laughs> it's like, what did you really learn about money growing up as a kid? Just let me out of the room. Oh I'll God. tell you anything. Uh, I want to get into all of the amazing work that you're doing currently and stuff that I don't even know about that I know is, is sort of top secret. So you're going to tell me. Uh, but... I want to start just like you did with me a little bit on your podcast is going back in time. And, you know, it's no secret that if you go on your site and you read your bio, you read that you left the field of law to pursue a career or a personal training job that was paying you $12 an hour. And I know a lot of people listening to this podcast are passion seekers. They want to find fulfillment and perhaps where they are now in their careers is not that. But it's scary to leave, especially if you don't have another job lined up or if you do, that if it pays less, how am I going to pay the bills? You were married at the time. What made you believe that everything would still be okay? Mm. Give us some reassurance. Yeah. I don't know if I did. (laughs) Um, So uh, Probably to understand that, you have to step back even farther. I was the lemonade stand kid. I was, I'm a lifelong entrepreneur. Um, and I'm somebody who's always kind of wanted cool stuff, but I didn't come from a family where we had a lot of wealth in the family. So I knew that if I wanted something, I was pretty much going to have to figure out a way to earn the money to do it, which is what I, you know, always scrapped to figure out how to do. And, um, I've also fallen on my face many times and, and realized, I think, 
through that process that I've been okay. I was an entrepreneur. I built my first small business in college that I sold. And um, I think what happened for me is that through a process of iterating and realizing I would always be okay in some way, shape, or form. It might not be pretty <laughs> and it might hurt along the way, but I always figure out a way through. Um, and also having, you know, looked at how hard I was working in the law. I mean, I was during my short stint in law, which is about, uh, it was about four and a half years. Um, I was in the middle of that. I started at the SEC as an enforcement attorney. And then I went into private practice in a mega firm in New York city. And within a matter of weeks, I was in emergency surgery, um, where after barely going home for a three week window of time, um, my immune system crashed and a huge, uh, infection just sort of mushroomed inside my body, ate a hole through my intestine from the outside in. I kept working through it for days. Because what did you think you had? I had no idea. I knew it was bad, but I also knew that we were on a deal deadline and oh that gosh. on a, like, like on a date certain, the foreign government where we were raising an offering was about to change the investment law. And we were hired to make sure that we hit that date and that we were perfect in what we did. So we all just... You just kind of enter an altered reality to a certain extent and you do the work that you're hired to do and pay a lot of money to do. How old are you at this point? I am um, In your 28, 28-ish, yeah. yeah, 28, 29. And uh, yeah, we hit the button on the deal. Um, I take a cab home. It gets a little fuzzy there. I know at some point pretty soon after that, within the next 24 hours, I wake up, realize that something's really wrong, go to the doctor he turns white, like grabs me by the hand, rushes me to like infectious disease and other stuff. And within a matter of hours, I'm checked into the hospital with a team of people looking at me trying to figure out like, do we go in through the front, through the back, through the side? Um, Time is of the essence. Yeah. And knock on wood, everything turns out fine. You know, it's successful surgery. It's, you know, it's the best possible case for me. But um, it was a wake up call and a couple of different things. Like on, on the one hand, it, it became crystal clear to me that the the career path that I had chosen was warring with my state of mind and my health. And that, or at least the way I was practicing it was doing that. It also became really clear to me that as I looked years down the road at the, not just how much the the people who I, you know, supposedly aspired to be, I, I looked at not just how much they were earning, but I looked at the lives that they were living and I didn't aspire to their lives. Mm -hmm. um, it used to be, there was a day, a couple of generations ago in the path of law where you kind of, it was a noble career. You did your time, you were mentored. There was a huge tradition of mentoring and then you made partner and then you kind of pulled back a lot and you lived a really fantastic life. That doesn't exist really. Um, at least from what I saw that didn't really exist. It just, people were grinding themselves to illness, to death, to, estranged relationships from kids and partners and family and just completely destructive health. I'm sure there are outliers. I'm sure there are ways to build it differently. But from where I sat, I didn't see, I didn't see a future that I wanted. And I also knew that I know how to work. Mm -hmm. I know how to figure things out. And that if I took that same work ethic and I applied it to something that actually I was interested in, I was like, there's so much more possibility to both build a living and a life for me. So um, it wasn't easy to make the decision to leave that. $12 an hour. Yeah. Which was- Can we go back to that? What did yeah. you, well, in New York City, 
It's one thing to be making lawyer salary. That, sometimes that's even a hard, you know, salary to, yeah. to make ends meet if you've got student loans and this and that. And people have said, like, I make six figures and I'm broke. Uh, that's, yeah. I think we can work with that. But $12. So I knew it was coming. So I, I made a list in my lawyer office, you know, like I took out a yellow pad and I was like, okay, so here's my list of the things that I would love to do for a living if I could figure out how to make them pay the bills. And what was clear to me was that a lot of them had that potential, but the way that most people were doing it wasn't going to give me what I needed, which means I would need to enter a different profession and then figure out a better mousetrap or figure out how the top people in that profession were doing it. What did they know that nobody else knew? So for me, that was the intersection of entrepreneurship and wellness. And I knew that I was going to need a blanket. So I went back to my work as a lawyer and basically I was just squirreling away every dollar that I could make because I knew that I was going to need a certain runway mm -hmm. to figure out the better mousetrap. And I was at a point in my life where I didn't want to live hand to mouth anymore. Where And I do live in a really expensive city. So, um, yeah, I just banked as much money as I possibly could, knowing that like this would buy me X months to go and figure this thing out. And so, and I, cause I knew that I was just going to have to talk my way into a job where I was not making a whole lot of money, um, in a city where it's not sustainable. Your, your podcast and so much of your work is entitled the good life project mm. GLP. Is that m the moment more or less when your Jonathan Fields good life project began? You know, um, I think it's the moment that I got back on course with it. I think that project probably began when I was like a little kid. The lemonade stand. Yeah. 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 Like I've, I've been my entire life. I've known my work. You know, I know that I, that I am here to make things that move people. Um, I'm a maker, like my heart and soul breathes making. I was the kid where, you know, I'm eight years old and I'm talking to my dad into, you know, like driving the car down to the town dump so I can buy, like just grab bike parts and then come home and duct tape them together and make Franken bikes. You know, this is what I do. Um, there are moments in life where I get distracted from that. And oftentimes money is at the heart of those moments because money can be a huge shiny object that um, takes you down a road that pulls you away from those things. And sometimes you have to kind of, you know, like something happens where it reawakens you to the fact that A, you've gotten off course and B, is there a conventional way to get back on course and still earn a family worthy living? Mm -hmm. And C, if there isn't, um, how can you create that you know, for yourself if you can? Are there things that still worry you or have create uncertainty along the lines of money. So is there, are there financial issues that you feel like you haven't, you're still grappling with or still is a source of, if, if they ever were, anxiety, things like that? Yeah. I mean, so I am, I'm a founder. I'm an entrepreneur. Um, I have, you know, like since the moment of leaving the law, you know, I founded a health fitness facility. I sold that. I entered the yoga world. I existed in that world for eight years and I sold that company. You know, I've been this current company incarnation for six years. So part of the way that I'm wired is I start things, I build them. And then at some point I pretty much move on um, because it's the making process that jazzes me. And I know that, you know, as much as it's amazing to run your own company, to choose like the people and the culture you surround yourself with, um, at the same time, the heart of that is always a high level of sustained action 
uh, taking and decision-making in the face of the unknown. You know, yes, I have a lot more control than a lot of people who might show up at a job. And at the same time, I generally have a lot more at risk on a daily basis. So, you know, until a day comes, which has not come yet, where I have X dollars in the bank, <laughs> Mm-hmm. And maybe that's just delusion talking as well. Um, I think anyone who's kind of wired the way that I'm wired always knows that there will never come a time where you stop growing as a person and where the thing that you're building has reached a point of complete, you know, like, okay, we're good. We just coast forever now. That's not the way that building something works. There, there are moments of it, but there's no sideways. There's, you know, there's no sideways in life. There's no sideways in business. You're either growing or, or you're, you, you know, you're constructing or destructing mm-hmm. on any given moment in time. And if you don't apply energy, you're, you don't just coast sideways. You're going in one of those directions. Um, so for me, yeah, I'm constantly in the back of my mind. There are, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a husband, I'm a dad. I want my family to be okay. You know, so I will always be looking for ways to accumulate wealth to try and as at least one representation of them being okay. You have said now a couple of times, like you're hardwired to be a maker. And in some ways, I think that's such a great financial gift because it gives you this confidence and this desire to always go out there and produce and be creative and make. But so much too of what influences us financially and career-wise is the relationships we witness, the things that were taught to us. So this question actually is something that my sponsor, Chase Slate, and I love to ask guests, which is what is a moment from your childhood, a scene that had something to do with money? Maybe it was something that they told you. Maybe it was something you witnessed or experienced and involved your family and involved your parents that taught you a great lesson about money. Yeah. I mean, it's a really interesting question. Um, and. Um, I don't know if it's a particular moment as much as it is, um, an awakening to the tension that money can create, um, in a family. Um, my folks split when I was, I guess, junior year ish, junior, senior years in high school. And, um, my dad had one, had one job his entire life. Um, he's a professor, a research professor, and he, madly passionate about his work. What topic? What subject? Um, human learning, cognition. Mm. Um, you know, he researched when I was a little kid, if you went to his lab, it was at one point rats, then it was pigeons, then it was human students for, for, from that point <laughs> on. And, uh, and my mom is very much wired the way I am. She's a maker. She was a, a, an artisan, a craftsperson. Um, she, when I was, uh, at that age, she had a pottery studio in the basement and she's a hustler too, <laughs> similar to me mm-hmm. in that, you know, like she would make amazing wares and then on any but given But you weekend, are also fascinated by the human condition. Totally. Like your father. So Right. So I'm a complete mix mm-hmm. of both of them. And I saw both sides of the spectrum. I saw my dad deeply passionate and committed to a job, which gave him a paycheck. Um, also academically is not known as being the biggest paycheck in the world. It's consistent and you love your work. And then I saw my mom, who is this artisan and maker and crafter and hustler who would go out on the weekends and we'd have a stand at the local craft fair and making money on the side. So I think the, the lesson is really, I saw these two radically different mindsets around money and I saw different ways of approaching the intersection between um, purpose, passion and um, money. 
And I saw also the way that if two people look at where that sweet spot lies differently, it causes friction. Um, and it, it probably also drove me to want to understand um, where that sweet spot is and, and how do you find it? Um, just for me personally, so I can understand like, where do I need to be mm-hmm. with that intersection between the thing that like fills me um, and the thing that fills my bank account? How did that, witnessing that financial oppositeness with your parents impact your pursuit of a relationship? Was it in the back of your mind? Do you feel like you were then hardwired to find, to to fall in love with somebody who was like-minded or or not, or you learned from that and how, you know, I'm just curious how that later showed up for you in your own relationship. Yeah. It's interesting. So I'm married, uh, as we record this, um, going on 21 years. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, and together almost 26 actually. Um, so we, um, I met my wife when I was in my late twenties, like she met before, after a young hotshot lawyer. (laughs) Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, you know, so she so she meets a guy who's like you know, like fresh out of law school, tremendous My mother would opportunity. Have loved that. Graduated law review, magna cum laude. You know, like I had hair back then, so it was like <laughs> you know the whole quote package. You know, and um and and through our time together, she was also um she had was starting a career in nutrition, working in a large wellness institution, and um and you know we thought that these were our defined career paths. And, and we both pursued them independently for a number of years. And when it, it kind of became clear that I was headed in a different direction, there's no doubt that, um, it, it definitely requires just a massive amount of conversation. And there are moments where you're on the same page. There are moments where you're not on the same page. There are, um, you know, there have been over the years moments where, so we work together now. Mm-hmm. Um, she eventually left her job. And became one of the senior people who run, ran a large restaurant group in the city, which is one of the hardest possible businesses that you could ever run with massive, massive swings in risk and money. And one day something is super hot and the next day it's gone. So she lived that in her own life in a very high level. You know, while she saw me literally, um, starting a series of businesses, I mean, I signed a six year lease for a floor in a building in Manhattan married with a new home and a three month old baby the day before nine eleven. Mm. Um so I th- I think what's happened over the years is that um my wife Stephanie, we've gone through so many cycles of entrepreneurship and taking huge sustained risk that um neither of us are thrilled <laughs> <laughs> you know at the fact that we step out on limbs sometimes for long windows of time. But we also understand that it's a part of who we both are at this point. Um, It's how you grow too. I mean, what I'm hearing from you is that to really build a life, a good life, financially speaking, but in so many other ways too, is you have to be comfortable with risk. You wrote a book called Uncertainty. Mm. You've lived the life and you encourage this in others, right? To sort of take, to go out on the limb if they can afford it. And even if they can't. Yeah. And and you can do it in ways that are much more strategic and much less angsty than I have. So I tend to be I tend to have developed, um, you know, part of it is probably just through practices and experience over time. And some of it is actually through very deliberate daily practices. I have a fairly high threshold for living in a state of high stakes uncertainty for an extended period of time. 
Um, and I know that I do that intentionally because the best things in life, whether they're the deepest relationships, the greatest adventures, or the greatest opportunity financially and professionally, they come when you're willing to be in that space long enough for not like the easy stuff to happen, but for the really juicy, beautiful, rewarding stuff to happen. Mm -hmm. But you have to be able to be there long enough to kind of like survive that. And it's the same thing in life. You know, like we, anything that's worth doing, um, will require you to step into a place of the unknown. Um, because think about this. What's the, the only way that you can know with certainty whether something is going to work, whether it's going to work for you, whether it's going to work financially, right? There are only two ways to know that. One is if you've done it before, in which case, who cares? <laughs> right. So why you, are you doing it again? Right. It's like, you're not like life is not about replicating. It's about like creating, mm -hmm. right? And, and, and the other way is if somebody else has done it. In which case, once again, who cares? Mm -hmm. You know, it, it removes the stakes. It like, it takes the meaning away from it because now you're just chasing something which has already been done. Um, and there's safety in that, but there is no genuine fulfillment beyond sort of like a, you know, momentary hit of dopamine. That's like, oh yeah, I could do what somebody else did too. When it comes to taking risks with your money, mm. what are some things that you would do that others would not. Um, I was talking, for example, to Tim Ferriss and he is also an entrepreneur. He's widely known. And he's like, look, when it comes to my money, I don't really want to invest as much in stocks as I do in businesses because my stomach for risk, um, you know, I can sleep better at night knowing that my money is with people and in businesses and invested in ideas. I can't control the stock market and I can't control startups, but that's just where I gravitate to. That's where I feel financially comfortable. Others would invest in real estate. Others might invest solely in the stock market. So where's your, where, where do you feel most at peace riskfully um, when it comes to investing your money? Yeah. I think with a blend of everything that you just said, mm -hmm. <laughs> so, you know, um, we have a stock portfolio, you know, we have a bond portfolio. Um, and there's is because, you know, um, because I'm a family man, um, I want a certain amount of something where I just kind of know like this is here right? and it's conservative and it's going to kick off this, you know, um, we have insurance policies, you know, there's, and at the same time, you know, if a certain amount of money is available to me and I am most comfortable probably investing in a way where I have most control over its potential to yield something real. And that's generally my own businesses or businesses where I have a hand in them in some way, shape or form if I'm advising them. So similar to Tim to a certain extent, but, um, I know Tim has done a lot of angel investing. Um, so he's put a lot more of his money in other people's companies. Mm -hmm. Whereas we, I think I, you know, like tend to focus more on my immediate ventures. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, probably cause I'm a control freak. <laughs> I love it. Extent. I love that you said I'm a family man. Um, I want to start saying I'm a family woman. I, think, <laughs> I love that. I think that more women should say that with as much pride as you just said, I'm a family man. And it just, it just, it implies so much good too. Yeah. Well, it's funny. Cause I, you know, like we both speak to a certain extent. So, um, I'm often asked whether it's you know, like through the media or on stage, like send us your bio. And, and I, no matter what, I always start with, um, dad, husband, blah, 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 blah. Hmm. I noticed that. That's. And what, and what's interesting is that then when people will sometimes introduce me, They'll 
say that after the blah, 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 after starting oh, this business, after featuring it. here, after They'll editorialize it. Right. Because they don't feel comfortable. They feel like they need to have more of like the business side relevance to introduce me. Oh, and he's also, you know, like a quote, family man, a father, a husband. And I'm like, that just says something to me mm. um, about the state of, of sort of public values. Good Life Project was launched in 2012, first of a series of videos, now a podcast, now really an empire. Long after you had that episode with the health scare. So what, what, I, I, I want to think that was part of the fuel for it. Like it was all, all building momentum, right? All those mm-hmm. decades. Uh, when was the light bulb? What was the light bulb moment for Good Life Project? Where were you? Um, I was focusing on being a writer and a blogger and a speaker and I got into the habit of writing what became kind of vogue in the blogging world back then, um, which was like a giant year-end reflection post. For me, that turned into a 40-page designed annual Warren Buffett-style report. <laughs> and at the end of it, I just, this thing popped into my mind. I was like, I'm not sure what this is, but there's this thing called Good Life Project. And I know I want to start to build trainings to help um, what I would call conscious entrepreneurs or founders build businesses a different way. Um, and I knew I wanted to create some really cool media. Um, so I started asking myself, what are my beliefs about business in the world? And I created what I call my 10 commandments of business. So at the end of that annual report, I just published the 10 commandments and said, there's this really cool thing called good life project coming. I had no idea what it was going to (laughs) be at that point. And not only did the report kind of catch fire and get shared all over the place, but then those things at the end really caught fire. And I was like, Oh, now I have to make this. Yeah. Now you <laughs> it's put like it classic there. entrepreneur, ready, fire, aim. Um, and, and so we started out, you know, I said, okay, so let's create some really, really beautiful, you know, like incredibly polished, um, well produced video that just sits down with people like, you know, we're doing and having long form deep dive conversations, um, about who they were. A lot of it in the early years was much more business focused. Now it's just become much more life focused. And, um, and that launched, you know, the, the first evolution of the media side of the business, which then funded, and this was deliberate. I launched the media. I actually had launched the business side first. So we launched a training program first because I wanted to be able to pay for the media mm-hmm. at a level that I, that I would feel proud to producing it. That funded the media. And then we've since launched all sorts of different programs over the years and transitioned into podcasting about four or five years ago now. It is unmatched, the kind of work that you do, the level of quality, the in-depthness, just, you know, your interview with me a little while ago, the hour, the, the, the stuff that you're able to extract from your interviews is remarkable. And I really, I just want to say, if I can brag, just, I love, I, I really admire that because there's so much content out there. How do you decide? I prefer to, I gravitate towards the quality work, right? Like I want to read the 40 pager. I want to read or watch the hour long interview. It's just, if it's done well. And I think in this day and age of communication and, and exchange and media, it's like on the one hand, what's beautiful is that anyone can open up their laptop and start a YouTube channel. But, you know, you really put resources behind the work that you do. You also mentioned that you're meticulous. And I interviewed, I, before this interview, I, I messaged one of our mutual friends, Chris, Winfield, shout uh, out. And uh-oh. I said, I said, you know, Jonathan better than I do. What is something about him that I, 
that, or a question that I should ask him. And this, this, I'm, go- this is all leading up to this question. He said, you know, I think what would be really interesting to ask him is his level of meticulousness is, for example, he said, he will spend a long time thinking about a font for a particular design. And, and I said, wow, I mean, uh, one, I, I really admire that, but two, like, that's a privileged place to be in, right? To be able to spend the time to think about a font. When in this day and age, everyone's just outsourcing graphic design, outsourcing this, outsourcing that, because we think time is money. So one, do you wish you weren't so meticulous that maybe you would rather spend that time on other things, but you just can't help yourself? Uh, or two, what, what do you say when someone's like, wow, that's that's a luxury, like to be able to sit there and like think about these things that take time and time is money. Yeah. Let me address the second first. Um, a hundred percent true. It is a luxury. It is a privilege. And I am, I come from a place of privilege. Um, it is something that I was honestly largely blind to, uh, until the last few years. Um, and I'm thankful that those blinders are starting to be taken off because, um, it opens me to, a sense of possibility, but also responsibility. Um, and that, that has led me to really just look at my place in the world, um, very differently and how I contribute and who I need to be in service of as I go there and how to acknowledge just the incredible privilege that I do have. And, and, um, you know, like on the one hand, I would have told you five years ago, I have created all of this. I've worked my ass off to get where I, where I am and, and I'm still nowhere near where I want to be. And on the other hand, I've also come to realize that there's a whole lot that has been baked in my favor from day one that I've had zero control over. Um, and, and I'm increasingly aware of that in the very beginning of my journey and grappling with that and understanding what is my place mm-hmm. in owning that. And then in some way, um, doing right by it. Um, so that's the second question. The first part, which is, um, what was the first part? <laughs> Do you wish you, you weren't so meticulous no, sometimes? Yeah. I, I, I have zero. Would you, would you call it OCD? No, no. Def- definitely like, not OCD. We use that word lightly. It's not, it's not yeah, to be taken lightly. I am obsessive about the details. Um, Charles and Ray Eames are, are, are among the most legendary designers, creators in the history. A lot of people know them from like the famous Eames chairs or mm-hmm. furniture and stuff like that. They actually ran a design, um, studio out of Venice, California. Uh, they were a married couple and they designed everything from, they produced movies. They designed splints for soldiers in war. They created anything. And, um, they once said something, I'm going to butcher this a little bit, but they basically said, um, the details don't make the thing. The details are the thing. Hmm. And I truly do believe that. Like so many people, there's been an ethos of make it good enough and ship it. And um, and so we're seeing, I think a lot of people now have the tools to be able to get to good enough a lot faster with a lot fewer resources. So we're seeing a massive sea of just ship it noise. Yes. And which, which translates to um, the standard has become mediocrity plus one, right? Which for a lot of people is fine. And you can make a good living doing that for a lot of people too. I'm not okay with mediocrity plus one. I don't feel a sense of pride. I don't look at something and say, I want to own that. When I put something into the world, you know, like I want to set the standard for whatever it is I'm doing. 
You know, so when we started shooting media, we shot on location with a three camera crew, you know, and I figured out how do I build the business engine behind it to afford that? You know, that's why we're sitting here right now Mm -hmm. in a studio that we built in my apartment using broadcast mics, you know, rather than doing a, a different format, because it's great to do also different formats. For me, I just made the decision that, um, this is the way that I want to produce, you know, and when we create something, I am obsessive about details because I truly believe that, um, the details are the differentiator in life, you know, and, and if you don't obsess about that, um, I think life's worth obsessing about. Yeah. If not life, what else? I mean, this life is the thing. You talked about mediocrity plus one. And I want to refer to, you have an amazing blog on goodlifeproject.com and, or is it Jonathan Fields? Jonathanfields.com. And I was, I was reading before I got here, this article you wrote about the unfortunate middle. And so there are like three places you could be, might be right now Mm -hmm. with any relationship that you have. And I, of course, I'm reading this, trying to read it through like the lens of money, but you wrote it through the lens of business or career or career, Um, but really anything. I mean, so there's simple grace, Mm -hmm. there's sustainable complexity, which I kind of interpreted that as like the goal, right? Mm -hmm. You kind of like, that's a good place to be. Well, yes or no. Yes or no. Yeah. And then there's the unfortunate middle, which is where you say most people are stuck because we are raised with this mindset that have a good, have a good career, but not that great. Make money, but not too much, you know, um, because why though? Why do you think that we're steered away from that direction? I, I think so. Simple grace is like the artisan. Mm-hmm. It's the coach. Relationships that grow out of a fierce commitment to self-discovery, connection, joy, et cetera. Right. You know, and it's like, you make good money, you're comfortable, you show up and you really enjoy what you're doing. And life is pretty simple. But we're culturally wired to be like, that's not enough. Like there has to be something more like that is not a valid way to live. (laughs) That's not a way to like earn your living. You've got to push further. If you're an entrepreneur, if you're a founder, the word is scale. Like there is no reason to exist unless you're going to scale this as big as it can be. Right. So, so most people buy into that. I need to get up and, you know, go up the corporate ladder. I need to, instead of be like an amazing coder or developer or engineer, I need to be in upper level management, which most engineers hate with a passion. Um, that's my husband, by the way. There you go. Right? Yeah. And, and, and part of that is a lack of training, but part of it is also, that's not what you're wired to want to do. Mm-hmm. Right. But that's what you're taught, you know? So like that concept of scale exists in companies it exists in your own thing. Um, so what we do is we, we push into the middle of where that thing is not realizing we have left behind the, all the beauty and the ease of that state of simple grace, right? We've added complexity and stress. We've also left behind a lot of the joy of the work that really we're here to do in the name of getting to that place where we can now build so much structure and so many resources and And so much scaffolding and rules around all this complexity so that we can someday slip back to experiencing life every day and on a level of simple grace, um, but at a much higher level of income. Um, the challenge is if you get to sustainable complexity, that's awesome. Most people never get there. I would say 95% of people never get there. They get stuck in the middle, the unfortunate middle. And that is the worst of everything. And part of it is because we don't know that that's where we are. Part of it is because we don't realize the place we are 
was never intended to be a, a stopping point. This is a place that you pass through. Part of it is because so many of us who land there feel like if we choose to go back to simple grace, it's purgatory, it's failure. Yeah. We failed rather than saying, you know what? I am not willing to give up like the, the part of my life that I'm going to need to give up to push through to sustainable complexity. Um, so I, you know, I'm, 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 I'm choosing to live that life of simple grace consciously, intentionally, because it gives me everything that I need. And, and it's free of shame and judgment. Can you be wealthy and have a life of simple grace? Can you be rich sure. and, and live simply gracefully? I, I That's speak what... to so many people um, who live exactly that, you know, people who um, really, really simple. Because doesn't money make things more complex though? Like to an extent it can. Right. Well, money, money in the unfortunate middle makes things really complex and adds stress without the benefits of why you want the money, mm-hmm. which is to get back to a place of ease. So, right. so someone said to me, I work really hard so that my life can be really easy. Yeah. Except most of us never get there, Yeah, you know, because we don't actually get to a point where we, we cross that threshold from the unfortunate middle to sustainable complexity. And that place very often is a place where you go back to being an artisan or doing that, the piece of things that you love and you built the structure and the resources for everybody else to, yeah. to manage the complexity that you've built, which comes along with a much higher level of income. But that's about... A higher level of income and impact are the benefits of that final phase, but it's really, really hard to get there. I think simple grace is a hard place to feel, like you said, people will judge you like, well, is this it? Yeah. And, you know, I, I feel like, I feel like maybe I'm in sustainable complexity slash simple grace there are days when I feel I'm more in one bucket than the other, mm. but I will say like the weeks when I don't have a lot to do work wise, when I can work out a little bit longer and see my kids more and just, just do whatever, skip a, you know, just skip down Skirmerhorn street. I, part of me, there's a voice that's like, you should be doing some work. Yeah. And honestly, I had a call that one of these weeks was recent and I had a a call with this woman who wants to redo my website and she's really a go-getter. And, and I told her I have all these projects in the works and she's like, what's keeping you? What are the mental blocks, Farnoosh? Why haven't you done them yet? I'm like, because who's keeping track? Like, why are you pushing me? I mean, I, I'm enjoying June. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it was, it, but you know, to, honestly, I felt like I had to give her an answer. I was like, well, you know, I think it's just because I'm procrastinating. You know, I felt like I needed to, to justify the fact that, or what I was doing was not acceptable mm-hmm. to her. Yeah. I mean, I, I know some private practice professionals or, you know, I, I know a million authors and, between them, I know plenty of folks, I have plenty of friends where they make a very nice living, more than they ever need. They're putting away money. They're taking care of their family. They've got plenty of money to play. They spend a, t- a lot of time just kind of thinking and creating or writing um, or speaking and and really just trying to figure out, okay, what's the cool stuff that I want to do and how can I do more of it? And um, and they're really, really good. You know, they're 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 good with where they are. And so many other people will look at them and say, but think how much more you could be doing. Yeah. Um, And it's very hard because society does not value um, somebody just sort of saying, no, I'm good. Like, I'm really, really good. 
I think that for women though, in particular, I'm really trying to promote more women to go out there and make more money. Even if you think you're good, because for women, I think like it's, we're so behind, you Mm -hmm. know, sometimes when it comes to our retirement, um, how much we make at the, at our careers and our savings. And so it's, we're just trying to play catch up. And so I think, uh, I also think that when women make more, the world becomes a better place. I, I completely, I, th- I think when women, women make are givers. more, when women are more, you know, uh, places of decision-making and power, I mean, and it's not just like in, intuition, like the data is crystal clear on all of right. this. You know, like, yes, the world is a better place when women control more of everything mm-hmm. as a general rule. Or just maybe 50-50. <laughs> that yeah. would be a great thing too. <laughs> yeah. We're not there yet. But, but, I th- but to your point, um, whether it's women or men, I think what you really need to do is if you want to get to that place, like know that there are these three phases and know that like there is this middle, which is really hard, very often lasts for years until you get to that place of sustainable complexity. And I think a really important exercise mm-hmm. is for everybody to look at that place of sustainable complexity and whether that's saying, okay, this is where I'm affecting a million people every year and making $5 million and, and employing a hundred people, Right is that before you actually make the decision to cross out of simple grace into the unfortunate middle, you look at that final place and you say to yourself, okay, so A, what will it take? If I sit here and to the best of my ability, reverse engineer what it's going to take to get to that place and reverse engineer the the effect it's going to have on my life to get there. Be really, really, really honest about it and ask yourself, am I willing to do that? Um, and, and, you know, the, the honest answer is most people aren't. Um, cause you know why, Jonathan, we have all these life coaches that tell us the only limits that are, that exist are the ones that you create in your mind, but there are some real limits out there. There are very real constraints. And there are also, there's a, like, so your, your comment was, I'm, I'm like strongly in favor of women making more money. A hundred percent. Yes. Right. That doesn't necessarily mean building large enterprise. I think it's awesome for some women and for some men, it's the absolute right move, right? But you can make a fantastic living affect a lot of people um, and still do it from a place of simple grace, Mm -hmm. whether you're male or female. I read a quote, maybe it was on Instagram recently, where all quotes go to live and die. (laughs) Uh, Someone said, I'd rather be significant to a few than mediocre to many. Mm. And I thought, yes. Because I felt in some ways in my career that I was trying to chase volume, you know, like I want to get bigger and wider and more people and more people know who I am. And um, um, that's a long road. And I feel like there are tricks to that trade and I'm not really wanting to do that. And I feel like I just need to get enough sleep, drink a lot of water stick to my guns, the people will come, you know, and in the meantime, the community might be smaller than Susie Orman's, but you know what? I love my community and it's, it's strong and we're strong, maybe not in numbers yet, but we're, we're, we're a quality group. And, um, and I, it's sometimes you need to hear those quotes on Instagram or read them. Do you spend, where do you, where do you spend time on social media mostly? Um, Mostly or just grudgingly. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I'm I'm really trying to mend my relationship with social media. Um, And I think it's, you know, when you blend the wiring as um, lying on the introverted side of the spectrum and heavily being a maker, things that pull me out of that flow um, and pull me out of like the more limited relationships that I love to be in are things that I don't necessarily view as yummy. 
But I also like realize that there is a, a space and a place and increasingly it is Instagram. Yeah. I, I never realized that there was actually real community and conversation that happened there. It's alive and well. And I've pretty much abandoned Facebook, although I'm still there. I just can't. Twitter is just a lot of angry people. Mm, yeah. um, so is Facebook to an extent. Instagram is still where like roses pop up and, you know, people are. I know. Maybe just happy. the people that we follow are Perhaps, like in conversation. Yeah. Well, with, that's the thing know. too. You can really control your your feed a little bit. And um, I've also encouraged people to contact me there and send me their questions and they have, and it's been, it's been great because it's easy to communicate on Instagram. Before we wrap, I wanted to, I mentioned earlier, I wanted to catch up and ask you what you're doing lately. And I know if people try to email you, there's an automatic (laughs) reply that says I'm busy making. And Chris, our friend said, you got to ask him about the most recent thing he went and made was guitars. And in your room, you have I do. Is this one of the guitars that you made? In that case over there. So (laughs) you, I understand you went to work with an expert craftsman to learn how to make guitars. So why? So um, First question, why? So I realized that I love, I I, I make stuff, but um, most of that has been happening in the digital realm for years now. And I love physical, the physical process of making something with my hands from nothing. I think most of us like that process in some way, shape or form, even if we feel like, you know, we suck at it. Mm -hmm. There's still something about it that feels good. Um, And I realized that- Primal. It is, it is. And especially for me that I've been missing it deeply. And for years I've wanted to, I've I've played guitar really badly, um, but I'm kind of in love with the form of guitar. That's just the the wood. There's something sultry about it. Do you play guitar? Yeah, but Mm -hmm. not well. Um, (laughs) And, um, I finally was able to find a way to learn how to make a guitar. And it's kind of a funny full circle story too, because I've been, um, looking for, they're called luthiers, um, for years and the, the, the experiences never worked out. And finally I found a guy about two hours outside in New York city and I call him up and he's like literally in the middle of Amish country in the middle of farmland and stuff like that. And, and he's like, there's an eight day program and you can Is do it. it Lancaster, only, Pennsylvania? Somewhere out Tim's around there. Tim's from around there. Yeah. So, so, you know um, well. so, so he's like, it's eight days. Uh, I said, I don't have eight days that I can take right now. Is it, or any chance that you would do it basically for half of every week for a month? You know, I could take two days. I can drive out to Pennsylvania late at night, spend what, what ended up being anywhere from 10 to 13 hours a day in a workshop, working with my hands and wood and just making stuff. And he's like, okay, I'll do it. He's like, there's another reason I'll do it for you. Um, and that is, he's like, you're the Jonathan Fields that wrote Uncertainty, right? And I'm like, uh-huh. Wow. He's like, yeah, that book is one of the reasons that I'm doing this. <laughs> wow. And you found him randomly. Random, completely randomly. Um, so I ended up doing that and I got a buddy of mine. Um, Did you film it? We Just little tiny clips here yeah. and there. And, um, and it was amazing for half of every week for a month, we'd drive out there and we would just kind of stay in like a tiny little upstairs room. We'd wake up early in the morning, get our coffee and we would start work at eight o'clock and it wasn't, we would take a single break for 40 minutes for lunch, no other breaks. And we would work very often through until eight or nine at night, physical work. And it was literally like I blinked and the time vanished. It was complete and utter flow. Offline. Yeah. Absorbed. You know, we, it was really hard to even get a cell signal out there. So, mm-hmm. um, and it reconnected me with um, how much a part of that um, is in me and how 
I need to be doing that on a much more regular basis. So in addition to a gorgeous guitar that was a product of this, what else did you learn? What was another outcome that kind of uh, was a beautiful realization? Besides also that, you know, you want to maybe do this again. Um, I think that um, spending as much time as you can doing the thing you're here to do is one of the most important things you can devote yourself to in life. And we're going to end on that. Thank you so much, Jonathan Fields, for coming and sharing us your stories, your humor, your honesty. And I look forward to connecting again. Thanks so much. Thank you, Jonathan, for coming on the show. I'm also on his podcast, Good Life Project, so be sure to go and subscribe to that. If you missed any of this, don't worry. Head over to somoneypodcast.com where you can download the transcript as well as get the audio and leave me a question for our Friday episodes. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. And remember, I'm on Instagram at Farnoosh Tarabi. Would love to have you join me there. And always, you can ask me questions on Instagram as well. Thanks for tuning in. And I hope your day is so much. Money.